Amen, amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. For the last several weeks, we have been taking an in-depth look at the first half of Romans chapter 6. And we, we've really slowed down. We, we, we've not covered a lot of ground real fast. We've taken the time to look at sometimes one verse at a time and really drive home the point that Paul is making. We, we, we've seen in these verses as it's unfolded that Paul introduces to us three crucial steps to overcoming sin in your life. And we spent quite a bit of time here. Uh, we've driven the point home in a myriad of ways. This morning, we're going to conclude that line of thought with the final two verses of that section. And that, that section runs through about, from about verse 3 to about verse 14 of Romans chapter 6. And verse 15 starts a new line of thinking and, and a new thought that builds on the previous, but it's another, another argument, if you will. So we're going to conclude that first section this morning. Now, the three steps, and you've heard this enough that I could probably give a quiz over it and everybody could pass it. The three steps that Paul has presented to us are, first, you have to know. You've got to know what happened to you when you were saved. You've got to know that you repented, you died, that you were buried with him, and that when he filled you with the Spirit, he gave you new life. And knowing that, then... You must reckon it to be true in your life. It's not enough just that it happened that you know it. You've got to count it as real in your life. And then finally, the last step of that process, which is where we are this morning, is you must yield your life to God instead of to sin. You've got a choice in the matter. We talked about this last week. You can choose. You do have a choice. You you determine where you go from there. Once you've repented of your sins and you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized his name, filled with the Holy Ghost, you have to determine to give your life to God instead of to sin. And you do that on the basis of what you know. I know that I died to sin. I was a youth leader for a lot of years before I was an associate pastor, assistant pastor, associate pastor, now pastor of church. And when I was a youth leader, we used to play a game with the young people. We would we would get a candidate or several candidates and we'd remove them from the room and you know and everybody else is in on the joke. And we would blindfold that candidate and we would bring them into the room where everybody else was and we would make them stand on a board that was sitting on a, a brick or a block just a few inches off of the floor. And then while the narrator would tell an elaborate tale to the to blindfolded per person, spin a yarn about how we're going to test your balance and we're going to pick you up and we're going to lift this board in the air and we're going to see how well you can balance yourself on the board. A few, A couple of strong young men would get on other, either end of that board, and they would lift it just a few inches off of the blocks. Not, not very high, just, just a few inches off of the blocks. What happens 
is that just the, 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 the pressure being lifted a few inches creates a, an a instability in, in, the, in the board and, and it creates the, the feeling that you're being lifted much higher than you have been lifted. And, and the narrator has to sell it. The, the really what happens next relies on uh, the reliability of the narrator. He's got to be able to sell the idea. He begins to tell the person standing on the board that, you know, they're lifting you higher and higher and begin to warn the people that are doing the lifting. Now, that's really too high. You need to, you guys don't need to pick him up that high. You know, you need, oh, wait a minute, you're getting close to the ceiling. You, you need to stop before they hit the ceiling. You, you, need to, you need to bring them down before they bump their head on the ceiling. And at that time, another young person has a book in his hands. And he reaches over the top of the person on the board and brings that book down until it settles on the head of the person that's on the board. And if the narrator has done a good job of selling it, the effect is instantaneous. When the book touches the head of the blindfolded person, they instinctively react. Usually they try to bend lower which causes them to lose their balance and they fall off of the board. And when they fall off the board, they do it in dramatic fashion because they think they're plunging three or four feet to the ground. And the reality is they're about six inches from the ground. And so it's a really humorous game, but the game, or or prank more than game, but the, the prank serves to illustrate a point. If the person in the blindfold had known that they were only eight inches off of the ground, they would never have reacted to the ruse that they were bumping their head on the ceiling. They've got to believe that when the narrator tells them, watch out, hey guys, stop lifting him, you're getting a little dangerous here, they've got to buy that in order for the trick to work. Because if they... If they didn't believe that, if they didn't believe that they were going to hit the ceiling, they would never lose their balance on the board. They would just stand straight and tall and recognize the fact that they were in no danger at all. What causes the person to fall off of the board is the fact that they reckon themselves to be several feet off of the ground. They buy the idea that they have been lifted. And it's a real, I've done it. I've been the guy in the blindfold. It's a real strange sensation uh, when you're lifted in the air. And they're they're not really lifting you, but just the the instability of that board being held off of the ground really contributes to the feeling that your feet, you're many, many feet off the ground. You're way up there and you're in danger if you fall. If they only knew the truth, if they only understood that they weren't in any danger at all, then they would reckon themselves to be safe and they would never fall. Every now and then you'd run into a hard head that either knew the joke or or figured it out, and, and they, they wouldn't fall. So you help them out a little bit. You make the board real unstable. <laughs> they don't have any choice but to fall. That's the only way you can get them to fall if they know What's going on? That's the way that sin creeps into the life of a believer. and reasserts its control over you. It convinces you that you're bound to sin. It reasons with your heart and mind that 
you're just flesh and blood. You, you don't really have any choice but to sin. And it convinces you that you cannot resist the temptation of sin. And all the while, sin is pulling an elaborate ruse on you. It's pulling a, a trick on you, a prank on you. You're not bound to sin any longer. You, you do have the ability to overcome temptation. You do have the ability to live a life that is godly and righteous. But you've got to know that. You've got to understand that. You've got to be able to consider the truth and count it to be real while still wearing the blindfold. While still living in the flesh. While still walking through this world. You've got to be able to know and understand what has happened to you. And on that basis then, resist temptation. When sin says you're, you're about to hit your head on the ceiling, faith in the work of Calvary has to cause you to stand up straight and recognize the fact that I'm not going to fall. God has his hand on me. In Paul's language, you, you've got to stop yielding your body to sin, yielding your body to the trick of the devil, yielding your body to the control that the devil is trying to place over you and instead yield it to God. And that's what the final two verses spell out for us. Verses 13 and 14 kind of conclude this segment. It says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace, beginning with verse 13, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. To overcome sin, he says, then yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, your members as instruments unto the righteousness of God. To overcome sin, you've got to present yourself. You've got to yield yourself, not to sin, but to God. Now, that word yield carries the connotation of putting assets that are under your control at the disposal of another or presenting them for use in the service of another. In this case, the assets that are under your control are the members of your body. That's what he says, that your members. And I said this last week, and I will interject it again this week. This is what, what that tells us is that this is not merely a theoretical spiritual discussion. We're not just talking about some spiritual transcendental reality here. We're talking about what you actually do with your physical body. We're talking about how you yield the members of your body. That's very important because there's some really bad theology out there that says I'm free from sin spiritually, so it doesn't matter what I do physically. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's a lie from the very pits of hell. It matters what you do with your physical body. It matters how you live. It matters what you say. It matters the things that you do. Those things are outward evidence of a genuine spiritual experience. What you do and how you live 
will never be inconsistent with the spiritual reality in your life. You can tell me all day long, well, I'm clean in my heart, but I'm, I don't live it out in my flesh. I, I walk with God. I've got a pureness of heart, but I, I don't demonstrate it in the way I live. My friend, that, that, that is a fallacy that does not exist. The way that you live will always be consistent with the spiritual reality of your life. So we're not talking about just a spiritual idea. We're not talking about just, oh, well, spiritually I've been set free, but it doesn't matter how I live. If you've truly been set free from sin, then you must live like you've been set free from sin. Amen? Knowing that, then Paul commands us not to offer the members of our body into the services of sin. Don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but yield yourself to God. Paul calls the members of our bodies instruments. That Greek word has to do with tools. It, it, has to, it can be tools of any trade, weapons of warfare or, or hammers that a carpenter uses or any kind of tool. They're tools, and tools can only do something in the hands of somebody that can use them. And so tools are yielded to the control of something else. And in this verse, sin is being personified as the slave master that controls the tools. It's, it's able to use the instrument that we yield to it. So our bodies are being likened to tools that are, are placed either in the hands of sin as the slave master to be used for unrighteousness or in the hands of God to be used for righteousness. Now what that tells me is you can tell which master is controlling the tool by what it produces. I'm going to slow that down real slow. You can tell which master is in control of the tool by what it produces. Sin unto unrighteousness or God unto righteousness. If your life produces unrighteousness, that's evidence that sin is in control. If your life produces righteousness, that's evidence that God is in control. You're not, it all goes back to works and faith. You're not saved by your works. If I can't produce enough righteousness to save me, but if I'm saved, the work of God in my life is going to produce righteousness. It doesn't work backwards, but it works that way. It always works that way. Likewise, if I'm lost, the evidence is going to be in what I do. I'm going to be judged ultimately by my works. Amen? Now, because of that, one cannot argue then, well, God has control of my soul. But sin rules my body. My Bible tells me bitter water and sweet water cannot flow from the same spring. It is impossible. If your life is yielded to God, then your life produces works of righteousness, not the works of sin. So that, that then raises a question. How does a child of God present or yield their body to sin. And to answer the question, I want to jump over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. I'm going to be there for just a few minutes. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says this, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, 
according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. So Paul saying, Timothy, I know good things have been spoken over you in prophecy, and, and I want to see you fight the good fight. I want to see you war a good warfare. So I commit to you this charge. This is, this is Paul. He, he calls Timothy his son in the gospel. This is, this is the, the father figure speaking to his son in the gospel, saying this is the advice I'm going to give you. This is, this is what you need to know to fight a good fight. This is what you need to know to live for God. And this is what he says, holding the faith. And a good conscience, which some have put away concerning faith, some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. So Paul told Timothy that faith gets shipwrecked when a good conscience is ignored. That's how you yield yourself to sin. You have to ignore your conscience. You have to ignore the Spirit of God that lives within you. You have to ignore the prompting of the Holy Ghost and the conviction that will settle on your soul whenever you contemplate sin. If you're a born-again believer, you don't walk into sin without the Holy Ghost prompting you and telling you you're making the wrong choice. You don't walk into sin. You don't just stride into sin without something inside of you saying, you need to consider your ways. You need to consider Consider what you're doing. You need to consider the direction you're going. That uneasiness that gets into your spirit. That's the voice of God. The only way that you end up in sin as a believer is if you ignore that voice. You've got to ignore that good conscience. You've got to put away the voice of the spirit. You've got to ignore what God is speaking into your life. If you're going to shipwreck your faith, Paul said, you've got to ignore that innate sense of right and wrong that God has placed in your heart. When he filled you with the Holy Ghost, he gave you the newness of life, and he empowered you to live a new life. And if you're going to continue in the old life, there's something inside of you that's going to protest. It's going to stand up and say, wait a minute, this isn't right. This isn't what I was saved for. This isn't what I was called to. I left this behind in an altar. I went to an altar and I repented of my sins and I died out to this and I shouldn't be doing this anymore. And if you're going to yield yourself to sin, you've got to ignore that. You've got to somehow turn a deaf ear to that small voice of warning that speaks into your heart and says, don't go there. Don't do this. Don't take that step. Don't make that choice. It's your job to listen. Pastor can't be there and stand on your shoulder and say, you need not to make that choice. I can't follow you around 24 hours a day, seven days a week. God didn't call me to follow you around and make your choices. You have to listen to the Holy Ghost. You have to listen to the Spirit of God. And you have to follow where he leads you. You've got to be sensitive to know when my will says I want to do this and his will says do that, I've got to be able to discern the difference because if I ignore his will and I pursue my will, I'm going to end up in trouble. Amen? That's the real tragedy of shipwrecked faith. Nobody shipwrecks their faith on accident. Nobody shipwrecks their faith on accident. No one ever intended to end up shipwrecked. But if you shipwreck your faith, you have to ignore the warnings. 
You've got to ignore the voice of the Spirit of God. You've got to ignore the Holy Ghost within you. And you've got to recklessly venture into waters that are known to be dangerous. You can't shipwreck your faith unless you go where you shouldn't go. Amen? So when you ignore your conscience, the result is always sin. That's where it takes you. You can't afford to give sin a place in your life. You can't afford to give sin a foothold in your life. Inevitably, if you flirt with it, sin's going to sink you. Inevitably, if you flirt with it, sin's going to reassert its control over you. If you ignore the warnings of your heart, if you press on beyond the comfort of your conviction, sin will devastate your faith. And when it is finished, it leaves behind the sad, tragic evidence of a shipwreck. That's what Paul called it, a shipwreck. The empty hull, the empty shell of lost potential and forgotten dreams. A shipwreck. That's what happens when you yield yourself to sin. Instead, we had to present ourselves to, the, to God. We present our bodies, the members of our bodies, to God by walking in obedience to the Spirit of God that lives within us. We've got to learn to follow that still, small voice. If the way that you yield yourself to sin is to ignore that still small voice, then the way that you yield yourself to God is to submit to that still small voice. You've got to learn to listen to that Holy Ghost that lives within you, to that voice of God that speaks in your spirit. You've got to learn to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit of God. You've got to learn to be sensitive to the direction that God's leading you. How do I do that, Pastor? Well, first of all, you cultivate a prayer life. That's where you learn to hear God. And, and, and prayer isn't just a one-way conversation where you do all the talking and God does all the listening. You'll never learn to listen to Him in that kind of atmosphere. It's a place where you get along with God and yes, you talk and yes, you pour out your needs and yes, you pour out the burdens of your soul. But then you meditate a little while and you listen to Him and you let the Holy Ghost speak into your life and you spend some time in the presence of God. When I say meditate, I'm not talking about Eastern mythology and assume some position. I'm just talking about get alone in the presence of God and worship Him and let Him speak. Let Him direct. And learn to be sensitive. Well, Brother McCall, that doesn't work for me. I can't, I can't discern the voice of God. Okay, then pick up your Bible and start reading. There is no more essential tool in prayer than the Word of God. Because guess what that is? That's the voice of God. He speaks through His Word. So pick up your Bible. Flip it open. You will be surprised... I promise you at how pointed the Word of God is and how relevant it is to the situation you're going through right now. Oh, but it was written thousands of years ago. You'll be amazed when you shut yourself away with God and you begin to pray and you begin to read the Word of God and how the Word of God will speak precisely to where you are and what you're going through. And will tell you exactly what you need to know and exactly where you need to go. 
You've got to learn to listen to him. You've got to learn to submit to him. You've got to learn to yield to him. You've got to learn to let him speak into the specific situations of your life. If you want to overcome sin, you've got to yield your bodies to righteousness. Some basic ways to do that are prayer. I've been talking about that. Bible reading. Fasting. Oh, that's an unpopular subject. Nothing breaks the hold of sin faster than denying your flesh. Fasting isn't popular because fasting is anathema. It's a curse to the flesh. It doesn't like it. That's why we need it. Amen. Another way is worship. Some spending time. There's a reason why. I, I, the, the kind of music I listen to in my truck is Christian music. It's not just because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wired for church all the time. It's because I find myself worshiping him. In all hours of the day, when I'm driving, when I'm going, when I'm doing, I find myself worshiping him. And that's another avenue by which the Spirit of God speaks into my life. I can be driving down Highway 63. It could be the middle of the day. It's not even a church day. It's a Monday for crying out loud. And 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 I'm singing along with the radio. Or I'm worshiping God because of what I'm listening to. And all of a sudden, the voice of God speaks clarity. In a situation I didn't have any clarity about. I, I was confused about what to do. I had no idea. And then all of a sudden, God moves in right where I am and speaks to me. That avenue of worship is what puts me in that place. That's why church attendance is so important. You knew I was going to get there sooner or later. Church attendance. Church puts you in an atmosphere on a regular basis where worship is taking place. It puts you in an atmosphere where the word of God is being preached, where, where you'll be exhorted to pray, to come and come to an altar and pour your heart out to God, where that still, small voice of the Spirit of God can speak into your life. The conviction of a good conscience is stirred up by godly preaching. And we're all encouraged to yield ourselves over and over and over again to the service of God at church. That's why the writer of Hebrews admonished the first century church not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. You need to be in church. You need to be at church. It makes a difference. If you're struggling in your walk with God, you need some church. Sometimes I had to bring the church to me. There's a cassette box of, or there's a box, a cardboard box full of cassette tapes in my office, and 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 I like good preaching. Sometimes I gotta uh, on a Monday I come down here and I lock myself in that office, and that old cassette tape gets to rolling. And I, why? I need a little church. I need a little something that I get. I need, I need a preacher preaching into my life and speaking into my heart. Amen. Because we all need to be preached to. Amen. Now, the latter half of that verse reads this way. But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of, unrighte- of righteousness. I'm sorry. Your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. I really want to focus in on that phrase, those that are alive from the dead. It's the last thing I'm going to say about this verse. Those that are alive from the dead. That's a reference to...
to spiritual life. It refers back to the process of salvation that we talked about so much in the last six or seven or eight weeks. We died with him in repentance. We were buried with him in baptism. And when we received the Spirit of God in our lives, we were essentially raised from the dead. That resurrection and life entered us, and we were given a new life in Jesus Christ. That's the reference that Paul is making. We should live like we've been filled with the Holy Ghost. We should live like those that are alive from the dead. We died with him. We were buried with him. And he didn't leave us that way. He filled us with his spirit, with resurrection and life. And we ought to live like we've been filled with the Holy Ghost. Amen? We're talking about overcoming sin. We're talking about resisting temptation. We're talking about living a life of righteousness. And Paul wants us to know that's only possible through the power of the Holy Ghost. You've got to live like those that are alive from the dead. The Spirit of God living within us is what empowers us to walk in the newness of life. I can't do it by my willpower alone. I need His Spirit working inside of me. Amen. Verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. The final verse of this section is Paul drives home the point that he's been making through the last 13 verses. God does not intend for sin to rule over a newborn believer. Amen. If you've been born again, if you have the newness of life, you of all people should not be under the dominion of sin. And that word dominion means to lord over. Sin should not lord over the life of a believer. If you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, if you've been empowered to live a life of righteousness, then sin should not have any dominion over you. Amen? Now, Paul ends this section with a statement that links back to the previous discussion of law and grace and, and foreshadows a point that he's going to make in chapter 7. We're not under the law, but we're under grace. The law was inherently flawed because it demanded obedience but did nothing to empower those that were to obey. On the other hand, grace supplies both the will and the power to obey God. Grace does what the law could not do. It breaks the dominion of sin and sets us free to yield ourselves as servants to God. Chapter 7 will make that point. The law does not give power over sin, but grace through the Holy Ghost, through the newness of life, through that process of death, burial, and resurrection, grace empowers us. Not to continue in sin, but grace empowers us to be free from sin. Amen? So it all boils down to this. Sister Renee, if you come to the music, why don't you stand with me? If you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, you have been empowered to live a life of righteousness. But it's not a life that you can live by your own power. It's not a life that you can, you can just decide on your own that you're going to live for God. You must allow the Holy Ghost 
to work in life. You must yield yourself to God. If you do not, then you will certainly yield yourself to sin. It's that simple. The Holy Ghost may empower you, but it will never force you. The Holy Ghost may give you the ability, but it will never make you. You have to present your bodies as instruments of righteousness unto God. If you do not, then you are certain to shipwreck your faith. If you try to live for God in your own strength, if you decide that you can ignore the need for prayer, for Bible reading, for fasting, for worship, even for church attendance, if you convince yourself that you can live for God without those things, listen to this preacher, you will ultimately fail. There are only two masters, and you're not one of them. There are only two masters, sin and God. And you will either yield yourself to one or the other. And if you're not doing the things that yield your life to God, then you will certainly do the things that yield your life to sin. That's the truth of the matter. So this morning, I believe today would be a good time to recommit yourself to the basics of living for God. It's never too late to start yielding yourself to God. The point this morning is not to beat you up about all the things you're not doing. The point this morning is to encourage you to allow conviction to impact your life and cause you to start doing some things you know you ought to be doing. It's time. It's time to rededicate yourself to your prayer life. It's time to go home and dust off your altar and recommit yourself again to a regular daily time of praying. It's that time. It's time to make up your mind. I will reach out to heaven. I will pray. I will ask God to make a difference in my life. I will make a place where I can listen to God. It's time to resume your Bible reading plan. How many started the year with a Bible reading plan? You track it in your phone. You got an app that says you're 465 days behind. That's last year's Bible reading plan. It's time to push that button that says catch me up. And what that does is says I'm starting right here. I'm not, I'm not going to go back and try to fix all the days I missed. I'm not going to go back and try to catch up on all the stuff I'm behind on. I'm going to start today, and I'm going to yield myself to God. It's time to make up your mind. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. You want to break the hold of sin in your life? Set aside one day a week and say, I'm going to fast every week. Every week. I'm going to set aside one day a week, and I'm going to fast. What I'm telling you this morning is, today, the appeal from the Word of God is very simple. You need to yield yourself. You need to yield yourself to God. And the way you yield yourself to God is through these things. Through prayer. Through Bible reading. Through fasting. Through worship. Through bringing yourself to the house of God and being, being in church. You need these things. It's about putting yourself in places where the Holy Ghost can lead you, direct you, and empower you to live a life that reflects the glory of God. This morning, I'm calling the whole church to a place of rededication. I'm asking everybody under the sound of my voice, 
if you'd find a place of prayer and you would commit yourself again. Perhaps, well, Brother McCall, I do pray and I do read my Bible. That's okay. Recommit yourself. Rededicate yourself. Find a place and say, Lord, I want to have a new fervency about it. I want to have a new passion for it. I don't want it to get old. I don't want it to get dead and dull and dry. I don't want it to be something I do out of habit. I must submit myself to you. I must submit myself to the Holy Ghost. I must allow the power of God to work in my life. If I don't, I'll make shipwreck of my faith.